0: Hey, everyone. You're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor Essa Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. We are at Eudaimonia Pod. In this episode, I continue my conversation about Dante's Divine Comedy with my friend, Matthew Ruffis Moser, a theologian at Pacific Azusa. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I'm really excited to have Matthew Rothus moser back on the podcast to do more Dante. Uh, So we just did an episode on the Inferno, and this episode is going to be on Purgatorio. If you did not listen to the first episode, you should stop right now and go back and listen to it, and then you can listen to my long introduction of Matt. But today I'm just going to welcome him back. Welcome back, Matt.
1: Thanks, Jen. Great to be back.
0: I really love Purgatory. It's my favorite part of the Divine Comedy. And I just have so many questions for you. The poem is theological in its content, it's got a whole lot of theology behind it, motivating it. Dante's knew a lot of theology, obviously. But the poem's not a theology, right? It's a poem. And so it's working in a different way. So my focus is just on seeing that it makes sense in terms of this general trajectory. So we can talk about the Catholic theology and we can talk about how it makes sense Mm -hmm. on that level. So we can talk about the Catholic notion of sin and guilt and, you know, the debt of sin Mm -hmm. that needs to be worked off. And the Catholic view about purity of heart is loving one thing, but that there's also a more basic thing going on, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. About doing bad stuff and how it leaves a stain, <laughs> right? That needs to be purified, right. regardless of whether or not you actually believe in heaven. But if you just have some vision of happiness as something that is attainable for you, even if only imperfectly then sin is a real impediment even after the fact right
1: right yeah the the trappings of the poem are are eschatological right they have to do with life after death yep. but i don't i at least don't read dante as being primarily concerned with as you're saying a theology of life after death right these these are are states of of the soul in lost in sin and the in the damnation of sin in the purgation of and restoration of of the soul and then the the soul in in its blessedness and i think he he is is in a lot of ways using this eschatological uh imagination to talk about you know life here below mm-hmm. and and the the moral and humane and philosophic and theological journey that we're, we're all on. Right. Uh, just as human people uh, on the, the, the pilgrimage of life. And I think that's what's so significant about the fact that Dante doesn't dream that he's died and had this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Especially in Purgatorio, it, there's so much attention to the fact like, Hey, you're a living man. What are you yeah. doing here? Yeah. And he keeps saying over and over again like i, I I'm doing this journey really uh, but i'll I'll do it again when I die. So he is bringing this eschatological kind of reality into the dynamics of just normal lived human life somehow and and he really draws our attention to that in purgatorio.
0: I think. Yeah. So one of the things that I sometimes focus on when I'm teaching it is that, right, so in Inferno, we have this setup where you have this contrapasso and the contrapasso is like making vivid and real the nature of the sin that the person had engaged in and mm-hmm. sort of showing what it would be like for you to really get what you want when you yeah. commit that sort of sin. yeah, And of course, getting what you want is like, terrifying and horrible but getting
1: what you want stripped away of all of the the delusions and fantasies that we build up that's right we're gonna
0: strip away all the fantasy and the delusion and we're just gonna give it to you raw and real and it's super Mm -hmm. ugly and scary but then so but that's like really about sin and the nature of certain acts and and i sort of I, i i think but i'm interested in what you think i think that Purgatory is really about the underlying tendencies in us yeah. that lead us oh, to commit yeah. certain sins. So, mm-hmm. the underlying tendency of pride, which could manifest itself in all kinds of ways, right? But it's the tendency that is the inordinate love of one's own excellence <laughs> that is being chipped away at in purgatory, mm-hmm. that's being transformed
1: yeah yeah i i often describe the difference between inferno and purgatorio as sins in inferno are being punished sin not plural but sin in purgatorio is being healed yeah it really is about the the reformation of of your character it's the rebuilding of the soul
2: yeah
1: and uh even though there's a lot of pain and suffering in purgatory, it's, it's a therapeutic pain and suffering. That's right. Uh, and, and so therefore it's, it's a pain and suffering that is willfully accepted rather than imposed. And, and not only that, but it's also a suffering that is, or a pain that is suffered in hope. Whereas in Inferno, one has to abandon
0: that's right. There's no hope. hope. Yeah. There's no hope in, in hell. And there's a lot of hope and a lot of grace in purgatory. So that's like, and a, a,
1: yeah. And a lot of friendship and a lot of prayer.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: And a lot of singing. A
0: lot of music. Uh, it, it,
1: mm-hmm. it, it's really striking just how different purgatorio reads from the first, from the opening terse, Uh from from Inferno, especially if you read Purgatorio, 1 as canto 35 of the whole comedy. I mean, the, you leave Dante and Virgil crawling down Satan's thighs, and then all of a sudden you're on the shore. The, the sky is awash in colors. There's stars again. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, a, it's a fundamentally different realm that That's they've right. crossed into because there's right. that literal conversion when they cross the equator.
0: Yeah. So there's a, there's a different atmosphere. There's a different geography, right? So hell is a descent right down into a pit where Satan is at the bottom and it's frozen. And then purgatory is like a mountain and there's, so, 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 so like I said, like purgatory is a mountain and Mm -hmm. you've, you've got to climb the mountain. And as you sort of burn off your sins or you, you purify your sins, the climb gets easier. So when you're at the mm-hmm. bottom, it's like really rough going. <laughs> uh, it's really hard <laughs> at the bottom and it's, it's like slow. Then the further up you get, right, the easier it is for you to
1: ascend. Yeah. After, after they get rid of their pride, Virgil, I think it's Virgil has the, the line to climb the mountain now will feel as play. That's right. Which is, which is wonderful.
0: Yeah, that's right. But there's also like this division between anti-Purgatory and Purgatory proper. What is going Mm -hmm. on with that? What's the deal with anti-Purgatory? Because that's like Pentos one through eight are anti-Purgatory.
1: Right. Yeah, so the the first kind of area uh, around the base of the mountain, Dante and Virgil are, are wandering around trying to find the gates to where the real purgation begins. And, and this area around the base of, of the mountain is where you find those people who, who have died in, in God's mercy and in God's grace. But but I don't know that we would necessarily call it a good death for them, right? These are people who have deathbed conversions, or these are people who are, um, are just really, uh, kind of indolent. We have people who, uh, who are excommunicated from the church that are wandering around and so part of their purgation is. They delayed in their life coming to salvation, mm-hmm. coming to repentance. They put it off. They put it off. Yeah, uh, and you know, this is a very human poem.
2: Look, they can still be saved, but they're
1: they put it off.
2: Yeah, and well, so what it...
1: are they having to do? They're they're having to put off their purgation, and so they're needing to, in a sense, be in a kind of limbo state
2: mm-hmm.
1: where they're not actually going anywhere.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know
1: that's the the biggest difference between not that's the biggest difference. That's one of the many big differences between Inferno and Purgatorio mm-hmm. is in Inferno everybody's just in their circle where they're being punished. Mm-hmm. Right? Paolo and Francesca don't get to move down to gluttony. Right. If they want to. Right? They're they're marked by their lust for eternity whereas in Purgatory it's a dynamic world. You're always moving up. Mm -hmm. And you go through these seven rings of the seven deadly sins Mm -hmm. because you're being pulled up your, your, as your nature is being healed, as your character is being healed, you're, you're learning to desire what is good Mm -hmm. again, more properly. And so you have a longing to move, to make your way towards God. And those people that kind of just piddled around during life, well, they get to, piddle around in the afterlife for for a little while too
0: yeah they're still pretty easily distracted there's like this scene where Cato, who's like the guardian of anti-purgatory
1: right the the virtuous pagan suicide who should be in hell
0: that's right so this is super confusing but Cato's like screaming at all of them like come on like you're not even paying attention (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, so canto 1, we should talk about canto 1 or canto 35 or how however you want to think about yeah. it. So there are a couple of like really noteworthy things. The first is that, you know, they see they see the stars again. And mm-hmm. there are these four stars which I take it or at least in, in my book it says that the four stars represent the four cardinal virtues, practical yep prudence justice temperance and fortitude or courage but then there's also like some kind of connection to the garden of eden and adam and eve Mm -hmm. do you want to explain that
1: i i'll i'll give it a go uh yeah there's the the line is i saw four stars not seen but by those first on earth and I think it's this, it's perhaps this idea because at the very top of purgatory is the garden of Eden.
0: That's right. Yep. And,
1: and so that's the, the journey of purgatorio is, is getting back to Eden.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the way that I take that at least is Dante sees these four stars that are, are at, at least at this point in the story are symbolizing the, the four cardinal virtues but it was Adam and Adam and Eve of that, that had those kind of like, you don't know, instilled in them by, by nature, right. They yep. existed in that state of original yep. justice.
0: Yes, they uh, did. Which I,
1: I think is Aquinas's language.
0: Yes, it is. If I'm not,
1: if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and, and so that in a way kind of gives you the, the project of the purgatorio. It's about the restoration of, of, the human person into that state of original justice again
0: right yeah so aquinas thinks that in the garden of eden people were so man was created both you know in a happy condition <laughs> right. but then of course you know there was sin and that was product of free will but mm-hmm. as a result you know this sin in the in the sense of original sin which is transmitted You know, we suffer in our fallen condition the four wounds, right? Right. The the four wounds are defects of these four virtues, right? So now we have what what does Aquinas say? Darkened intellect, disordered desires. Anyway, I can't remember how he characterizes the other two, but right, we're messed up now,
2: (laughs)
1: right? (laughs) We're messed up now, Yeah. yeah. So we,
0: so we suffer these four wounds. And they really are the lack of the virtues that we were originally Mm -hmm. given. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, right. So, so, so I like that reading of the four stars is kind of like the goal. Like that's where you're you're trying to get, but then, you know, there is immediately the introduction of Cato. Right. And this is confusing because at first you're like, oh, is Virgil going to go away and now it's going to be a Cato for some reason, who's like a stoic, what's up with that, but that's not what happens. So Virgil is going to go as far as Virgil can go a purgatory, and then he's going to leave Dante to go on his own. But what, so what is Cato doing there and why isn't Cato in hell? And, why, and the question isn't why isn't Cato in limbo with the other cool philosophers, but actually why isn't Cato in the realm of the suicides, which actually is a really terrible place of hell.
1: Oh gosh. Yeah.
0: The what's like the wood of the suicides, right? Yeah, Where well, they it's
1: the dark, yeah. Yeah, it's, they're it's like a trees. Dark wood.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what what's going on? Because I mean he, Tato he, killed he himself.
1: could also right, he killed himself, so he is a, a virtuous pagan, so he could be in limbo. He he killed himself so he could be in the circle of violence. Uh, but he also he also could be judged for treachery against his lord, right? Because he's he's resisting uh he's resisting Caesar in some way. So there's a lot of ways he could be Dante could have categorized him in an Inferno, and yet here he is, and he's the first in this kind of sequence of people that Dante meets, and you're like, wait a minute. How are you here? You have Cato, and then you have Manfred in Canto 3, and you have Buoncante in Canto 5, and it's just the sequence of people that don't seem to belong. But Cato, Dante's doing something very unique with Cato, is that he seems to be kind of the the guardian or the bouncer, perhaps, of the Mountain of Purgatory? Because Dante and Virgil come up out of out of the out of hell and cato shows up and he says you didn't get here the normal way yeah. normally souls arrive by boat which maybe we could talk about uh and he says our our heavens our heaven's eternal laws broken and as dante looks at him and i this is the most i can make of it he describes cato as having a long beard streaked with white and it, it ends in double strands down to his chest. And then the those four stars that we were talking about are shining on his face so much that he himself is shining mm-hmm. uh, with with the brightness of the sun. And that is the depiction of Moses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? that's the artistic depiction of Moses with with the the forked beard and and the the bright face from the glory of God. And so one of the things that I have thought about, and I've seen other commentators kind of suggest this, is that, that Cato is kind of a poetic analogue and, and a pagan analogue to to Moses. Hmm. Moses the lawgiver, that there was something in Cato that uh despite him being a pagan is nevertheless nevertheless recognized by heaven as as being true and good and fitting for this role that he's in mm.
0: but that's weird <laughs> but that's weird right because it is weird it because to think that would involve in some way idealizing his suicide Because you can't deny a suicide. So then you have to make it not just like, okay, but even good. And that's pretty hard to square with what the Catholic Church teaches about suicide, which is that it's an act of Mm -hmm. despair.
1: Yeah. And I think that's kind of what what Dante does. I've seen some commentators say that Dante is understanding Cato's suicide as Almost a kind of martyrdom, mm-hmm. resisting um, a martyrdom for freedom, a pagan martyrdom for freedom, and yeah. so in that way, it's it's kind of conformed to Christ in some kind of distant way. I mean, there's no way, yeah,
0: except that around Christ the scandal of it. Except that Christ, Christ didn't kill
1: himself, <laughs> right? And martyrs don't kill themselves. <laughs> So, so we could, we could maybe yeah. underscore the analogical yeah. word there. Uh, but I mean, ultimately, how else do you square it?
0: I don't, I can't, I, I, I really yeah. struggle with this. I struggle like when we teach it, I'm just like, I don't know. I think it's weird.
1: Right. And, and this is, this is one of the things that I, I do with my students. They read it and they're like, Kato, I don't know. Was he OJ Simpson's friend or, or like they have no frame <laughs> of reference for who this Cato is. Uh, and And so I, I tell them who it is and I just watch the, the sea of faces as they just get more and more confused the more I'm explaining. Mm -hmm. And their question is, shouldn't he be in hell? Right. And I say, yes, he should be. And like, here's maybe some solutions. And they're like, okay, that kind of makes sense. And I say, but do these satisfy your questions? And they say the same thing you just did. Not really. Yeah. And I say, and, and this is exactly where they start getting really frustrated Mm. because they feel like the moral logic is shifting under their feet.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, I just wonder, I'm always trying to make myself be okay with Cato being there. And mm -hmm. I mean, here's one potential route. I don't know if it works, but let's just try it out. So one potential route to making it okay is just that it does disrupt the logic and like, that's actually good because we can't fully understand the law. We can't fully understand what God is up to. And, you know, Dante wants to make us aware of that, that like, yeah, given everything that we know, this doesn't make sense, but there is. And, you know we just have to assume that it makes sense from God's perspective. And then maybe Mm -hmm. the moment of transfiguration that you were describing, where he's sort of like Mm -hmm. glowing from the sun and Mm -hmm. is a Moses-like figure, you know, maybe God's grace is reaching out to Mm -hmm. people in very surprising ways. You know, I don't...
1: Yeah. And then it just becomes our responsibility to get on board with it. Mm -hmm. And I do think there's something, something to what you're, you're saying. And maybe we can talk about this when we talk about uh, Paradiso 20, because it reaches a fever pitch because Dante keeps saving these people that there's no evidence of them being Christian. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And Dante just kind of does it.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And
1: even I mean, Dante scandalizes himself. He scandalizes his own character
2: mm-hmm.
1: with some of the people that he saves. Mm-hmm. And this becomes the subject of, of conversation in Paradiso 20, where Dante has just kind of had it. And he throws up his hands and he says, how can this be?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's kind of along the, the lines that you're, you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's, these, are the, these are the mysteries of, of God's will. That We can see the effects of, but we'll never be able to see the source of.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so then who do we need to become in order to kind of conform ourselves to, to, to the scandalizing mercy of God that Dante is depicting
0: here? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, if, if Cato is in purgatory, then at some point he's got to make his way to heaven. Cause right. Like nobody, Absolutely. nobody that's in purgatory like stays in purgatory forever. Like right. purgatory is right. by its nature a temporary thing. Now, temporary yeah. could be a long time. <laughs> but but
1: well, it seems like he's already been there for quite a while.
0: Yeah. 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 But I mean But there the like strictly speaking, you know, the the like the whole logic of the poem depends on this idea that you die and then there's this like judgment. There's like this particular judgment on your life, but then there's like big judgment <laughs> as mm-hmm. in judgment day right yeah. and whatever like we're seeing is in the space right between yes. the particular right. and right. the general like the general judgment yeah. hasn't happened yet
1: right but as as virgil talks about the general judgment will just kind of confirm yeah the, the judgment here right? yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah
0: like it's not going to reverse no. it right but But there's, but you're still waiting for something to happen. Right. And then at the general judgment, uh, won't the people in I mean, like, won't purgatory kind of cease to be
1: or. I mean, it, it will have fulfilled its purpose. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's whole existence is an undoing of hell. Right. That's even the myth that Virgil tells at the end of Inferno or when Satan's thrown to heaven and plunges into the earth all of the earth displaces itself and the abyss of hell creates the mountain of purgatory so so purgatory is is exists as the corrective to to hell and once we're past that point then then purgatory it seems will have have done its work
0: right well, so in insofar as um, Canto One goes, the last thing that I want to talk about in Canto One is this whole scene with the girding of the waist, the, the girding mm-hmm. of his waist with the reed, mm-hmm. and the washing of his face. Can we talk about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think it's one of the the best moments between Dante and and Virgil, and. The the scene is that Virgil wipes the stain of hell off of Dante, which is again a kind of programmatic image for what's happening across the this entire Cantica is is sin is being wiped wiped away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what Virgil does is he he rinses the tear stained cheeks and he restores the color and then he plucks a uh, what Dante calls a humble reed from from the, the shoreline, and he wraps it around Dante's waist. And this is a, a callback to where, uh, I guess it was Inferno 17, 16, 17. Uh, Virgil takes off Dante's belt and uses it to lure the, the monster of fraud, Jerion, up so that they can ride uh, on his back down to the lower parts of hell. So Virgil is, is restoring is restoring uh, something that, that Dante lost over the course of his journey here so far. Um, is, and, and it's... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh,
0: well, I was just going to say, doesn't the reed symbolize like humility or something?
1: Yeah, he calls it a humble reed. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is this kind of image of, of the peacefulness of the reed just kind of moving with with the flow of the water and that's the kind of docility, I think, the docility of soul that that these souls need to have to do the the purgative work. Mm-hmm. Uh they need to be teachable.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah well I think... but
1: then also there's just this foundation of of humility mm-hmm. that you need to have to undergo the process. And What's really fascinating is that Virgil plucks this reed and then another one immediately grows back. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's almost like not just the atmosphere of purgatory, but the very land of purgatory is, is kind of ordered to the, the journey that these souls are, are undertaking. It's providing the, the, the resources, the spiritual resources that the souls need to make the journey up the mountain. Because you have these stars shining and, and giving their, their courage. You have the humble plant being provided by the sea. And, and, and so you have this um, this kind of harmonious image, which is going to get replayed over the course of the poem.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me just because if I think about Aquinas on humility, humility is, you know, opposed to, it's the virtue opposed to pr- pride. But also, it's so interesting. So Aquinas thinks of humility. He discusses it in the treatise on temperance. So it's a proper Mm -hmm. part of temperance. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those virtues that is annexed to temperance, right? So like Mm -hmm. the core notion of temperance is, of course, moderation of your sensual desire for food, drink, Mm -hmm. and sex. But then there are all these proper parts of temperance, which are sort of like temperance in the relevant ways. And... Humility is like temperance because it is the moderation or the chastening of an appetite, but it's not your sensual desires, but it's actually hope as a passion Mm -hmm. that is being Mm -hmm. moderated or chastened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, And so also one of his main discussions of pride, there are two main discussions of pride. One's in the treatise on sin and one is here in the treatise on temperance. And it's also, for Aquinas, it's kind of modesty, right? So he he has all these different forms of modesty, one of which is humility. But what I find so interesting is that it is a chastening of an appetite, right? And so it makes sense to me that humility is like the first, I don't know, gift, I guess, or, I mean, insofar as he's given this read, or the first like real deeply symbolic move in purgatory, because once you get out of anti-purgatory and you get to like the actual gates of purgatory. So it's like canto nine, I think what's the first of the seven sins. It's pride, Pride. right? Right. Because pride is the root of all sin, right? According to both Augustine and Aquinas, it's the source of all sin. And according
1: to the... Penitential manuals. Like okay, yeah. Dante would have been very familiar with.
0: Yeah, so so like yeah, everybody's got their sense, but at the root of all of it's pride, mm-hmm. kind of inordinate self love, and so humility is what you're gonna need to get up this mountain in some basic way. But but why Virgil?
1: So I think that it is but temp- it, it is that interplay of of humility and hope. Yeah.
0: Uh, okay, so you know, <laughs> we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to move on. But just before we get to the gates of Purgatory proper, is there anything else you want to say about Anti Purgatory? I
1: I do just want to note because we talked about Ulysses, yeah, from Inferno twenty six, yeah, and there's a great scene in Purgatorio 2 where a boat of of souls arrive for their purgation. And they're, they're arriving at, at the island of purgatory the same way that Ulysses tried to get to purgatory, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he was drowned, uh, by, by God, um, which is, that was a harsh sentence, but, uh, uh, but all of these people show up and, and the boat is being commanded by an angel and there's no oars. It's just the angel's wings that propel it forward. Mm-hmm. And there's all of these great callbacks to Ulysses, right Ulysses says, you know we made our oars, our wings for that mad flight. And so Dante is is here showing U- Ulysses attempts to to get to Purgatory. Under his own proud ambition, his own desire to know, to transgress the boundaries,
2: okay.
1: here meets its its counterpoint in the humble, maybe even passive uh, movement of of these souls that are being guided by by an angel. That's a kind of deliberate callback to Ulysses, and there's a lot of Ulysses connections in some of the cantos we'll talk about, but I just wanted to point that out to just start to make some of those, yeah. those connections mm. to Inferno.
0: Right. Cause it's also the contrast between humility and pride. Absolutely. So another thing about Canto nine that I just want to talk about briefly is the fact that, so he, so he gets these peas like carved into his forehead and the angel says, once entered here, be sure you cleanse away these wounds, right? So they're wounds. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. like ashes or something it's like wounds
1: right no actual wounds and,
0: yeah and so and then you have a lot of this imagery of penance from the church
1: uh and then he says go in but be sure that you don't look back right because if you look back like in nostalgia for your pre-conversion life uh you you will find yourself outside the gates again
0: Yeah. So this whole, like, don't look back thing is, (laughs) it's biblical, right? I mean, you know, there's the example of Lot and God's like, don't look back. And of course, his wife looks back and she becomes a pillar of salt. It's also huge in the story of Orpheus, right? (laughs) Who goes down to Hades to get his love. And they're like, okay, you can take her, but don't look back. Because if you look back, then she's gonna stay down here forever. But of course, he looks back. <laughs> so I mean, so so it's there in the pagan and in the biblical mm-hmm. sources. What it, I mean, what is this trope really all about? Like, don't look back. What what's wrong with looking back?
1: Dante. In Purgatorio really seems concerned with with the danger of, I mean, it's a more contemporary concept, but with the danger of a kind of spiritual nostalgia. You mentioned earlier, Cato comes down the mountain and yells at a bunch of the people in Antipurgatory. Mm -hmm. And that's because they're all gathered around Dante. Dante sees one of his old poet buddies and says, hey, sing sing one of the old songs like you used to so that i can kind of rest my soul Mm -hmm. a little bit and that's when cato comes down and yells at them and says don't you don't you realize the journey that you have ahead and that seems to be a preoccupation with with dante it it has to be a forward movement through purgatory Mm
2: -hmm.
1: there has to be a constant moving forward. And when you rest at night, it has to be true rest so that you can be prepared for the future. So, so much of Inferno was about looking back Mm -hmm. at life. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so Purgatorio has to, I think, be characterized by a looking forward. Mm -hmm. Because Dante is a, I mean, he's Aristotelian, he's a teleological thinker. And so he is now at a point where where he can look towards the future, towards achieving that yeah. that beatific vision, that that telos, and even his poetic rhyme is structured in this always forward moving.
0: Yeah, so well, it's,
1: it's almost like the form and the content are matching mm-hmm. more as we get deeper into the poem.
0: Well, it's interesting because hope is a very forward looking virtue, yeah. right? And because hope is this passion for a difficult future good, a good that you don't yet have, but that you want, Mm -hmm. that you somehow have to believe is possible for for you. Otherwise you're in despair. But yeah. So maybe like if you're looking back, it's somehow against hope or could also possibly be like some kind of unhealthy attachment to sin or your past life or, you know, so there's almost like there's a potential Augustinian thing going on, right. Where, right. For St. Augustine, you're either always turning towards God, right. Or you're turning away from him. And obviously the forward looking thing, right. Is to, is to get to God. And I think in the more pagan context, it's usually like, like in the orpheus context it's like a lack of resolve <laughs> or maybe yeah. even a lack of fortitude
1: is yeah, that that's what I was yeah. saying it's like, yeah like
0: like he's weak you know right. and so maybe it's a little bit of that too like you need to be strong now and focused on where you're trying to get and you know part of the need for strength is that this is going to be a very painful, super p- painful journey that you're taking. Right, that's also scary. So yeah, so I like that little bit. I think there's like a lot there that's rich.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad that you you invoked Augustine because the this canto ends with an Augustinian nod because they open the gate, and in contrast to Inferno, when they first crossed in and they heard screaming. Uh, here they they hear singing, and it's it's the hymn, uh, Te, Te Deum Laudamus, which in Dante's day was associated with Augustine's baptism by Ambrose.
2: Oh, and I didn't so know very, that.
1: Yeah, the very first thing that Dante is claiming to hear or thinks he hears is this very famous baptismal celebratory hymn.
0: Yeah, well, that's cool. Very
1: cool. Augustine.
0: Okay, so Canto 10. I wanted to talk briefly about Canto 10 because it's about pride. I think it's the first in a series of cantos about pride. And I just thought it would kind of be a good way of talking about how he kind of structures every terrace of purgatory proper, right? So there's the, the gate that we were just at, where the Ps are inscribed on your forehead. But then when you think about, like, the seven roots of sin, we've got lower purgatory, middle purgatory, and upper purgatory. So there's kind of, like, this division. And then in lower purgatory, you've got the proud, the envious, and the wrathful. And then middle purgatory, you've got achadia or the sloth, and then upper purgatory is the covetous, the gluttonous, and finally the lustful. It's like mm-hmm. the reverse of hell, right? So like in hell you're going down and the further down you get, like the worse the sins are. But in purgatory, you're going up and the further up you get, the less terrible the sins are. <laughs> right? So the final yeah. virus is like the lustful, whereas that was like one of the top rungs of hell Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) right so you're like you start by burning off the worst and then you you like literally get lighter as you go up right and so so it's like faster too
1: because you're 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 digging out the roots of vice that's right first yeah and then it becomes easy to trim off the dead the dead branches that's right you
0: know. Yeah. You're just exfoliating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm just kidding. It's not really a spa treatment. You have to walk through a wall of fire, but still. So yeah. But then like, if we look at terrace one, which is pride or vainglory, you have on each terrace, you have the penance, you have the meditation, you have the prayer. So for every terrace, there's like a specific prayer. And for the for pride, it's the Paternoster, the Our Father. You have a specific angel, right? So there's mm-hmm. the angel of humility and terrace one, and you have a specific hymn or benediction. There's like specific yes. music mm-hmm. for for each one. So I just thought, like, maybe we could just talk about why it's structured that way. I mean, you could go through every single one and Musa has this great, I'm just reading from Musa.
1: I, I knew exactly which page you were on uh, when you were reading all of them. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've photocopied that no, page. Oh,
0: totally. It's like, how does anyone teach it without
1: this? It's great. It's great.
0: Yeah, why why is it, what's the significance of the penance, the meditation, the prayer, the guardian angel, and the benediction? And then there's also this numerical scheme, which I don't quite understand myself, so maybe you can help me with that.
1: Yeah, so let me, uh, I'll maybe try to make some slightly simpler uh, comments, kind of more th- uh, thematic. the whole purpose of of these terraces is to is to purge a vice and and instill a virtue and so those are are the the kind of pairings pride gets purged humility gets gets nourished and and instilled and there are ways in which these this movement from from the vice to the virtue happens. One is the kind of contrapasso, and I think Musa calls it the penance in that that
2: uh mm-hmm. yeah that
1: sheet.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's yeah, I mean it's, that makes again, sense,
0: right? I mean because for right. every sin if you're gonna you have to do penance
1: right and but they are they are slightly different than than the inferno i think we talked about earlier how the punishments in the inferno kind of reveal the the true nature of of the sin they kind of give you what you want yeah stripped away of all of these things whereas here they're actually efficacious in developing the virtue that they're they're trying to
0: yeah well they're not they're not punishments i mean there's a big difference between they're therapies Yeah, yeah so so like this is a misunderstanding about penance. I think that a lot of people have now. Absolutely. They think like for penitential practices, well, they think, well, you're just punishing yourself. And it's like, no, it's yeah. not punishment. yourself yourself penance up. Yeah. are very different, right? Yeah. And what's going on in hell is punishment. And what's going mm-hmm. on in purgatory is penance, right? Yeah. And penance isn't punishment. It is a purification mm-hmm. it's it's yeah it's just a totally different thing
1: and and perhaps the the proud would be a good example so their their penance is they have to carry huge boulders on their backs
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they're hunched down carrying these massive boulders on their back to get them in the the posture of humility mm-hmm. And there's a wonderful moment where Dante has to lean down to talk to somebody uh, who's carrying one of these giant boulders on their back. And after that conversation, Dante says, and then I stood up straight, but my mind remained bent down low. And so that's a great illustration of what the penance is trying to, to do. It's 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 fundamentally changing your character from a character that's, that's wounded by this vice. to the one that's healed by this virtue, then the other thing that, that. Almost all of the terraces have is what some scholars call example. I forget what Musa calls it, but it's some kind of imaginative depiction of the vice and the virtue. So when Dante is on the terrace of the, the proud. He sees all of these carved statues in the mountain wall of the virtue of humility,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and there's always an example of Mary. Mm-hmm. There's always an example from from uh, uh, pagan history or pagan mythology, and then there's something from from the Bible. So those are kind of the three examples that Dante always sees of the virtue. And then there will be another example, another set of three exemplars, or at least three exemplars of the vice that's, that's being purged. And so Dante's drawing in the imagination as a faculty for this kind of spiritual and, and moral reformation of, of the penitent. And, and I think on a kind of meta level, that's kind of what the comedy is. You know, Inferno is is an exemplar of of the damnable soul, the soul in in vice, the soul in sin, meant to to be uh, kind of spiritually cathartic. It makes us want to turn away from that, whereas Purgatorio makes us want to desire healing, and the images in Paradiso make us want to desire that state of blessedness. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be kind of the the mechanic of, of each of the terraces in Purgatorio. Some of them are are visual exemplars, some of them are auditory. Uh, but there's there's typically always some kind of imaginative spiritual therapy that's that's being applied right. to each of the souls. And then of course you have the prayers. They're learning how to pray in harmony with other souls on the mountain. Mm-hmm in inferno you didn't have any community you just had crowds Mm -hmm. right which is which is a line that i'm stealing from somebody maybe tony Mm Esselin. um whereas here in purgatorio you actually have the mountain becomes a kind of city it becomes a community because you're singing these these songs in harmony with other people on on your terrace.
0: Well, and also there is
1: this image of friendship. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, also there is community because everyone is working towards the same common good,
1: towards the same common right? good. So yeah.
0: there is real unity, mm-hmm. not just in penance, so not just an action, you know, like, cause they're all performing the same mm-hmm. penance and they're reciting the same prayers and they're singing the same hymns, but they are ordered to the same common good that is shared between them all. And I think that's the really deep unity. And so yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, they are a community working towards <laughs> their common good. Why? Why? So the, So there's prayers, but there's also benediction. There's also the singing of hymns. Why the music? There's a lot of music in purgatory. What's going on with that?
1: In contrast to the screaming that he hears on every circle in hell, mm-hmm. certainly, uh, I do think that there is, this is the work of the people, right? This is liturgy. There's there's a certain kind of liturgical structure to purgatory and to each day in purgatory. Um, and and tying to to the last thing that we said about the, the community, there is the shared liturgy that the people are all working together.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they're doing the, the work of the people in this kind of transformation. And then I also think that the realms of Dante's mercy are, and his realms of grace are really marked by the exchange of blessing, mm. right? This is some of the peacefulness of of Dante's comic can- uh, Cantica.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Inferno is so tragic and there's so many curses that are being passed on mm-hmm. between the characters and between the characters in Dante. Uh, whereas I think Dante is depicting that part of the work of mercy is is the practice of the exchange of blessing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: of peacemaking.
0: Yeah. So then that would... So then the singing of the benediction is it. it, So it's like clear to see how the penance is changing the soul and the, and the praying. Is there something about, so the, the singing is beautiful. Is there something about it's being music that is making a change in them? Do you think?
1: On, on a, Meta level, one of the things that Dante seems concerned with here is the nature of poetry. And he always thinks about poetry as as uh, being intimately related to to music.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so much of purgatory Purgatorio and Paradiso sees Dante working towards, the transformation of poetry and a kind of proper ordering of poetry to prayer and praise. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so I imagine, I imagine that all of the singing that starts happening in Purgatorio is in, since he's putting it in poetic verse, he is drawing poetry towards its kind of a kind of spiritual perfection Mm -hmm. a kind of spiritual glorification of his of his poetic verse this is where poetry transcends the pride uh, that dante has to overcome in his skills as a as a poet where his poetry has to become in some sense co-extensive with prayer and and praise Mm -hmm. You see him starting to do this in his Vita Nuova, where he says, for my poetry to really do the work that I wanted to, it has to become praise of Beatrice. And here we're seeing something of that same thing happening, Mm -hmm. uh, but ordered kind of theologically or spiritually. Right. Uh, and then I think that maybe even just a more basic idea is there can be no songs in hell there can be no joy in hell Mm -hmm. um right there there can be wailing and and lament Mm -hmm. uh but there can't be there can't be joy and there can't be hope and and i think there's something about music that is a communal celebratory kind of act yeah that would just be that is fitting for purgatory and paradise but not fitting for for hell
0: yeah that's good Okay, 16 to 19. I know we wanted to talk about that. We're going to have to make it real quick.
1: Real quick, yeah. (laughs) Like
0: like elevator pitch, 16 to 19. Okay,
1: okay. Real quick elevator pitch. Your podcast is called Sacred and Profane Love. This is the center of the comedy, uh, and it's a discourse about love, and it's tied to the structure of of purgatory, the mountain, Mm -hmm. And I think it's a beautiful encapsulation of how profane love becomes sacred love for, for Dante in, in Purgatory. Um,
0: well, I love that, obviously. Um, uh, so, what, so, like, what's really going on in Cantos 16 to 19? Who's giving the discourse on love?
1: Yeah, so Virgil, interestingly, is giving this discourse on love. And what he's doing is he's kind of laying out the moral topography of the mountain. Uh, the mountain's divided into three. You have misdirected love, pride, envy, wrath. That's where your your love that's meant to be towards neighbors m- misdirected towards yourself. And then you have deficient love, right? sloth. And then you have excessive love, loving good things, but too much. Too
0: much, yeah. Order-
1: greed. Yeah, greed, gluttony, and, and lust. All, all good objects, but loved in in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Virgil kind of exposes Dante to to the moral education that he's undergoing. Right? You're Dante, you are not simply just shedding a, a, a vice and gaining a virtue. But you are also learning how to love in an ordered way, right? How to, how to love well. And I think this is just a key moment for Dante who makes his name as a love poet Mm -hmm. that the very center of the divine comedy is this extended discourse on how love comes to be healed and transformed so that he can then love the right thing in the right way.
0: Right. Yeah. Cause that's the whole moral philosophy slash theology of the poem, right? right. Is right. that you need to have well-ordered loves in order to be happy, but you don't get them for free. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. And <laughs> the more that you're, so like, if you have these tendencies, this disordered desires, right. That are, that are kind of settled in your soul, any of the seven wounds, right. Then these are keeping you right from being happy. They're holding you back. They're weighing you down, and but to get rid of them is painful because
2: mm-hmm.
0: because literally, that, I mean, that's how desire is. Whether your desire is good or bad, when you don't get what you want, it's painful, right? Right. And so, if your desires are bad and you're so you're not getting what you want um it's a kind of pain but it's another kind of pain to make the sacrifices and the and to do the penance necessary to get rid of the desire such that you no longer want that thing in the way that you want it and that that sort of thing is what's going on in, in purgatory, obviously, and nobody really wants to go through that process. Like everybody of wants course. to be good and everybody wants to be happy, but nobody actually wants to suffer because um, it sucks. Mm-hmm. And, and but that but that's like the whole process is that you only get this by suffering, and so the idea is that the suffering in the suffering in purgatory is so different than the suffering in, of hell neither of them is pointless like both kinds of suffering are intelligible but the suffering that you're undergoing in purgatory has within it the potential it's like a hopeful kind of suffering right
2: absolutely yeah
0: yeah and and it's a and it's a kind of grace you know to be able to see your suffering in that light and obviously you would have a very different perspective on your suffering in hell but i think that on a um, secular kind of here and now level, we have a choice, <laughs> in a sense, of how we understand our own suffering, right? Nobody wants to suffer. Everyone's going to suffer. If you love anyone or anything, you're going to suffer. And so the question is, what perspective am I going to take on my suffering? Am I just going to yeah. see it as a terrible punishment and a burden and horrible, or am I going to see it in a more penitential sort of way? And I just think that's a choice that people face with respect to their suffering. And it's a, it's a pretty deep existential choice. And I think that, yeah, it's, it's one of the more profound things about this poem One of the things that was really important for me as a young person reading it, I wasn't a believer, but this idea that your suffering isn't meaningless and is potentially transformative is potentially a necessary step on the way to being a better person and being in a position where you can really experience the truly good things in human life or experience some kind of deep joy or love made sense to me. It just made sense to me. I was like, yeah, that seems attractive. Like, even apart from a the a broader theological commitment, it seemed attractive to me. Right? This idea of penance.
1: Which is which is so fascinating to me because when I read this for the first time as an undergrad, I hated this part. Oh really? <laughs> I absolutely hated it because I was very much part of a, of a tradition that tied suffering to, um, how can I put this? If you were suffering, you were letting the devil win. Oh, you need, you needed to Uh, victory in Jesus, uh, all of that kind of, uh, very much a health and wealth kind of oh kind of kind of gospel mm-hmm. and and so i think this is why why i i mean i just completely I, I sold my dante books immediately after finishing reading them the first time because i hated them so much uh but it's only only as my my faith has grown and developed that i've seen the the kind of thing that registered to you Perhaps at, uh, at or around the the same age, um, but but my kind of childhood faith had had set up a roadblock mm. to precisely the kind of insight that that Dante has here and that you're articulating. Um, but then, just yeah, that's just fascinating.
0: Yeah, so I want to jump ahead now to Canto twenty-seven. This is actually my favorite canto. <laughs> <laughs> in the whole purgatory. And I, the reason that I like it so much is, so this is where Virgil kind of, I guess, doesn't totally drop out, but like stops really doing anything meaningful in the poem.
1: It's his last lecture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's his last hurrah. And the, the setup of Canto 27 is that, um, so, you know, they're still on Terrace 7, so it's like the lustful and the lustful are um, it's, it's hard to describe what they're going through. Like they're kind of trapped in
1: fire. Yeah. They're in a, they're in a, a ring of fire. Yeah, they're it's like, it's, it's just a Johnny Cash song. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah.
0: And you know, so there are like th- three different cantos where, you know, they're dealing with the lustful. And so he's, he's trying to get out. So he's, he's finally trying to, I guess, summit Mount Purgatory, you know, get to the top and then it's earthly paradise. It's the Garden of Eden, but you can't get to the Garden of Eden unless you walk through a wall of fire. And when I first read this, I was just, it was like, it was like me confronting Satan, (laughs) you know, in Inferno. I was just incredibly struck by the imagery and the metaphor this idea that you have to walk through a wall of fire to get to the other side what's on the other side Beatrice right Dante knows Mm -hmm. this now Mm -hmm. who on earth has the courage to walk voluntarily through a wall of fire like one how insane do you have to be (laughs) uh to do that you know of of your own free will like it's not like somebody can just push you through <laughs> or whatever like you have to walk through it and also why is it fire you know like why isn't it oh i don't know i'm going to be washed in the water of the jordan or like there are all these other symbols for purification why is it fire Like, when I was first reading it, I was thinking a lot about this, you know, and, of course, there is the metaphor of, like, fire as purifying metals and stuff, getting rid of impurities, but there's also this idea of fire as, so, like, water can clean you, right, but fire can completely transform you, right, from one kind of substance into another kind of substance. It has this transformative. So it has this purifying effect, which water also has, but then like fire has this transformative capacity to it, such that you could be something totally different after you go through fire. So I thought it was like an incredibly powerful image of what kind of change purgatory can make kind of purifying but also this kind of transformative thing but then how do you have the courage to to go through it and the only answer is he wants to see Beatrice right Mm -hmm. like that's the only thing that could possibly get him to do this I also just really liked that because it seemed really true to me that like really only love can make you do things that in any other context you would never do. Even if you knew like, wow, this is going to be totally great for me if I do this, you're not going to do it Mm -hmm. because you're scared. And Dante is really scared. He's very terrified. And it's only his love that kind of impels him into paradise. And then at the end of it, Virgil's like, I led you here with skill and intellect from here on, let your pleasure be your guide. And that's also like incredibly striking, right? Because once you actually have been purified of sin, you can be guided by pleasure, right? Because Mm -hmm. what pleases you now is actually what's good for you. And that's like, that's like astonishing that he puts it that way, right? Like your pleasure now could be your guide, uh, just go enjoy stuff.
2: Right.
0: And that's really, that's the transformation, right? That purity of heart really brings about, you know, you, you can actually just do what you enjoy now and not worry about it. Oh, I really love this. I mean, to me, it's like the whole, and then what, and then, sorry, there's one more thing about Virgil. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to say anything anymore because Mm -hmm. now your will is upright, wholesome, and free, right? And not to heed its pleasure would be wrong. I crown and miter you, Lord of yourself. And, you know, that's an astonishing notion of freedom,
2: right? Absolutely. That
0: you, what real freedom is, is when you have the goodness of will such that you can follow what pleases you you can just enjoy stuff that's real freedom but wow what does it take to have that (laughs) a whole lot of pain and suffering right a whole lot of transformation so this is my I, i i just love this canto
1: yeah i would add just just a couple of quick thoughts to that uh regarding the fire imagery here um I mean, one, he's going into the Garden of Eden. So you get the the image of the cherubim with the flaming sword mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. That kind of ring, ring of, of fire. So I, I think it's also kind of <laughs> playing on that mythic imagery. Uh, but then also Dante was condemned to being burned alive if he ever returned back to Florence ah. from his exile. Yeah. So you're you're talking about the... The existential um, the dimensions of this, and, and I think, yeah, it's even more kind of immediate for him because this is this fear of of fire is actually like laced into his personal history now, right? I mean, if he if he were to go back, this is what he would be he would be facing. Um, so I think I think that that's really significant, and I think it's significant then that. That what drives him through through the flames, outside of the text, right? Dante, the author, is this this love of of his art and his his profound desire to write something that is true and good and and beautiful, uh, but in doing that, uh, right. Uh, when Virgil says, "Hey, Beatrice is on the other other side here, waiting for you," I cannot see her eyes already. Uh, Dante links it to the mythic story of uh, Pyramus and Thisbe, right? It's it's this image of being called through a garden wall to death, and so there is this kind of transformation that you're talking about. Like in a sense, he has to kind of die to come to the possibility of of new life. Mm-hmm. Um, in that encounter with Beatrice, but he also has to, in a sense, as a man, uh, he has to has to die into his art. Um, the scene with Beatrice is the only time that Dante name names himself in his work. And one of his commentators said, This is because the name Dante means to give, and he gave himself over to poetry. Mm. Right. He he had to sacrifice him himself uh, as as a as a man to become to become the poet and to give of himself so entirely to to, to Beatrice in the narrative and to his poetry
2: mm-hmm.
1: outside of it. The other thing that I would say just about about love in kind of driving one. With courage through, through this kind of suffering is the fact that Dante's with two, two, two people that have become his friends. He's with Virgil and he's with Statius and Virgil goes through the fire first and guides Dante through and, and encourages him and says, I'm walking through this. It's not harming me. You could stand in this flame for a thousand years and it wouldn't singe a single, a single hair on your head. Mm-hmm. And so then Dante goes through and Statius goes behind him. And I think it's a, a wonderful picture of, of the love of friendship. That's so characteristic here. Uh, it is that virtuous friendship that Dante himself experiences mm-hmm. within, within the narrative of that's that i think is virgil's the kind of culmination or the beginning of the of the culmination of virgil's final lesson Mm -hmm. right he does give this kind of gift of freedom at the end but but that final lesson towards freedom begins with virgil leading leading the way right he's taking taking dante through and he's leading by example so virgil's education is is enacted here and and I think that there, there's just a wonderful picture of Dante as surrounded, quite literally, by these friends who are accompanying him into this suffering and delivering him to, to Beatrice.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, so Dante, or sorry, not Dante, Virgil walks through the wall of fire and Dante follows him. And so then they're both in earthly paradise, but then Virgil just kind of disappears, right? And I think one obvious assumption is that it goes back to hell where he says mm-hmm. he belongs, right? All right. So we're like super running out of time. So really quick. I let's... think we ran
1: out of time about an hour ago. That's no, okay. <laughs>
0: we're <laughs> yeah. So like, let's just sort of wrap up the end of purgatory. What? Let's sum it up.
1: Okay, let's sum it up. Beatrice yells at Dante for three cantos.
0: Yeah, good for her.
1: And, she, <laughs> and she, right, I know. And and she yells at him because when she died, which he recounts in his Vita Nuova, he took up with other women after she died. That's scoundrel. Uh, well, that scoundrel. Well, I mean, he married another woman. He was married to yeah. another woman. yeah. And, but, yeah. but Meaning what like he when does, he wrote
0: poetry about other women? What does it mean to take up with other women in this context?
1: So we're going to have to kind of go across Dante's other writings here. But at the end of Vita Nova, uh, Dante finds this compassionate woman that he finds consolation in. And in his convivio, he allegorizes that compassionate woman as lady philosophy.
2: Yeah. <sighs>
0: yeah. Not the, not the first one to do that. Yeah.
1: But not the first one to do that, right? <laughs> uh, and, and so what, what seems to be happening here in my reading of it Is that Beatrice is not coming in her own name, but she is coming in the name of, and perhaps even as Christ to Dante Mm. here throughout, throughout Dante's life. Mm -hmm. She, she, she is a theophany of, of Christ Mm. to him throughout his life. And by taking up with other women, I take that to be an indication of of the fragmentation of his affections of his loves, mm-hmm. they got drawn in other directions, right? And he settled for, I think what Musa translates as simulacra of the good
2: mm-hmm.
1: rather than the good itself.
0: Yeah. Well, fine. He's so what's she had. Yeah. I mean, fine. He didn't have purity of heart, but he just went through Mount purgatory. So why yell at him now?
1: Well, and I think this is what makes makes it unique to dante that this is this is not what dante's saying every soul has to go to go through but for dante to be saved out of the dark wood it's not just that his dispositions need to be kind of healed there has to be this moment of baptism so inferno ended with this kind of conversion when they crossed the equator right and Purgatorio ends with another conversion where Dante is baptized. He has to weep over his sins.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And specifically, the, 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 oh, this is a terrible phrase, but mm-hmm. I'm going to say it anyway the grammatical sin of his neglect of Beatrice or his neglect of Christ in Beatrice.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so there's a specificity that Dante has to be rebuked for and called back to. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think is finally the moment of conversion Mm -hmm. because yeah, he, he does the, the mea culpa in Canto nine, but he doesn't weep for his sins in Canto Mm nine. He doesn't weep for his sins anywhere in purgatory, Mm -hmm. whereas he's weeping sentimentally throughout all of Inferno. Yeah. Yeah. And so what he has to do here is he has to offer genuine penitence, which is manifested in tears. And he describes it as, as the ice in his heart melted mm-hmm. and came flooding out in his tears. Yeah. His tears then lead to baptism. So I, I, I see it as the, the kind of culmination of his journey up the mountain. So Virgil led him to, to, um, through through the moral growth and transformation and and Beatrice is saying, Now that you have been your will has been realigned with the good, now you can finally undergo this kind of final therapy, this final healing of shedding holy tears.
0: I mean that's interesting though. So on the one hand, yeah, sorrow for your sins is a gift of the Holy Spirit, or it's a gift of grace. Mm -hmm. But why in paradise, right? He's in earthly paradise now. That's kind of a weird place to be crying over your sins. Why wouldn't he be doing that while he was still in purgatory? Like, what's the significance of it being, you know, like you said, it's like the summation. Like, he's there. He's in the Garden of Eden.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What, I mean, what is the deeper significance of that? It's, got, I mean, there has well, to I- be one.
1: Yeah, I think it's because he's not at journey's end. He has to undergo this, he has to undergo this journey through paradise now. And so in order to, in order to, to do that, to undergo that journey of understanding and that transformation of his understanding, I think there has to be this absolute, And total reorientation of his being towards Christ in Beatrice. Mm -hmm.
2: I mean... And so what the
1: journey up the mountain Mm -hmm. has done and the, the return to Eden has done has gotten him prepared for the encounter with Christ in paradise. So I don't know that he is at a... I think he's at a state of moral innocence when he crosses into... Uh, the Garden of Eden, but Beatrice's goal now is to move him to a state of perfection.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, I mean, right. I think one of the questions it raises is when is he actually out of purgatory? Cause like prima, thing mm-hmm. you'd think, Oh, well you're out of purgatory if you're in the Garden of Eden, but then it seems like there's this final thing that's happening in the Garden of Eden. So is the Garden of Eden still Kind of like purgatory. Or like when I guess one thing that I've always had difficulty explaining or just really understanding for myself is when is he actually in paradise? <laughs> right? <laughs> you know
1: Canto 30 of Paradise. I
0: think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well that's
1: the Imperium. Way, right? way off now. What's that? um, well that's a way off yeah. from now. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: But when, when does purgatory end? Let me just ask it that way. Is purgatory over when you walk through that wall of fire? Like I get, I I, some... like I get, the journey of the soul isn't over, but is
2: purgatory
1: right. over? I think for Statius, it is. Oh. Right, because Statius is Statius is dead. Statius has undergone the the purgation. For real. Mm -hmm. Dante, however, is not, I mean, in a sense, he's never out of purgatory because he's just going to die and have to do it again. (laughs) Right. He said, he says that as much. Yeah. Uh, So, so yeah, I would, I would say that within the constructed universe of the poem, purgatory for the dead ends when you cross into Eden. Mm,
2: mm-hmm, yeah.
1: But but for the journey of the pilgrim, mm-hmm. because he is mortal.
0: He's not dead.
1: I yeah. I yeah I, I I do not think that there is quite as easy quite as easy a line mm-hmm. to to draw.
0: Yeah, that's helpful.
1: Because because even at the end of paradise uh, Bernard is praying to Mary, like, "Hey, Mary, keep keep this guy from falling back into sin."
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
1: so, so, yeah. I guess I would would I'd be hesitant to say that Dante, the pilgrim, ever is ever properly done with paradise. Mm-hmm. He he has been healed, but he hasn't been perfected.
0: Right.
2: Right. Yeah. So,
0: okay good all right matt thank you so much for hanging in it's been over two hours you're a trooper
2: good times (laughs) though
0: yeah so we are going to at some point after Lent, we're gonna go into paradise proper and yeah it'll be really exciting but thanks for thanks thanks for helping us through purgatory oh
1: this is great thanks for having me yeah of course
0: You've been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes or on the Appalachian.com you can also follow us on social media we're on twitter at eudaimonia pod and of course we're also over on facebook at sacred and profane love if you enjoy this podcast please leave us a positive review on itunes but please also consider supporting us on patreon you can go to www.patreon.com slash eudaimonia pod to become a monthly patron for just two dollars and as always, I'd like to thank our most recent patrons for their generous support. So my deepest gratitude goes to Allison N., Harry D'Agostino, Patrick Cunningham, Anu K., Edward McKernan, Mike Kuzak, Nathan Wright, Chris McDermott, Henry Perebrun, Thomas Hall, Jennifer Deslong, Suker Lee, Nathan Sword, Brian McKenzie, Giovanni Dasa, Carl Lawrence Meyer, Brett Hagbird and Chan Stroman. For our next episode, I'll have Matthew Rothus Moser back on the podcast for one final episode to finish off our series on Dante's Divine Comedy. We're finally going to get to Paradise. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.